Well, let's start this morning imagining something. Let's imagine that you are talking with someone who is maybe a friend or maybe a family member or maybe someone that you work with, and this person is not a Christian. You may be able to think of someone you know like this. And you're sitting wherever you might sit with this person, at Starbucks or at work or in your living room on a couch. You're sitting together and you're just having a friendly conversation. And they start going on about a new song that they have heard on the radio that they, that they love. Oh, it's this new Kenny Chesney song, and I'm loving it. Oh, it says this at one point. It's like, oh, I don't feel there's a guitar lick right there telling you all about this song that they love. And then they realize that they've been talking a while and that it would be polite to give you a turn in the conversation. This happens all the time, right? And so they look to you and they say, oh, well, well what about you? What have you been listening to lately? And the first song that comes to your mind that you'd want to talk about is a song about the gospel. Maybe one of the songs we sing here or a song that you just know and love that's about Jesus' gospel. And you realize, oh, wait a minute. I could turn this conversation into a gospel conversation just by talking about this song that I love that is about the gospel. And so you consider it for a second. Because you could say after, oh, we just learned this, this new song on Sunday morning, let the nations be glad about how Jesus is king over all the earth and that's gonna bring joy to every heart one day. You could go on about that and then, then you could talk about, oh man, when our church gets together and sings, you should hear a group of forgiven people sing to Jesus. Now you got wide open doors to talk about the gospel, right? Or maybe that song we just sang are you washed in the blood? I could tell dear to so many of you. Just take that right open door to the gospel right there if you start talking about that song. So in a scenario like that, especially those of us that go to Sunday school and know how to give good Sunday school answers, right? We know what the Sunday school answer is for what should you do in that scenario, right? Yeah, declare the gospel to your friend, right? That's what we ought to do. But let's talk instead about the real me and the real you Sitting there, realizing we've got an open door, we could share the gospel with our friend, but there would probably be a cost if we did it. There would probably be consequences if we did it. And so the question I want to ask is, would the real you sitting right there, how likely is the real you to take the open door and to bring the gospel to your friend? And I think for a lot of us, if we're honest, the answer is, not as likely as I would like it to be, right? Most of us would like to be the kind of people that any open door, any opportunity we pounce on and we bring the gospel to our friends. But in real life, we don't do it as often as we believe we should. And the question I want to ask this morning is why, why is that? I think the answer is that we are afraid it will be rejected. In fact, we probably expect the person that we're bringing the gospel to, to reject it. That puts fear in our hearts, and so we don't bring it in the first place. And this morning, I believe the Lord wants to conquer that fear in us, to make us faithful gospel proclaimers to our friends. I think it was to make us into people who can Look at that fear that says, what if I bring them the gospel and I lose this friendship over it? What if my family relationships are forever strained because I won't stop talking about that Jesus that I love? The Lord wants to face those fears in us this morning and make us faithful. 
And I believe he longs to do that through this second half of Isaiah 6, which is printed in your worship guide, or you can turn to it in your Bible. Last week, we looked at the first half of Isaiah 6 as our Bible reading plan took us through it. This week, we look at the second half because it is very difficult to proclaim the first half without the second half. Last week, we saw Isaiah taken into the throne room of God, witnessing God's holiness, saying, woe is me, I'm an unclean man, and I am before the Lord of hosts, but the Lord forgives him anyway, spares him the condemnation he is about to receive before the Lord's holiness. And then the Lord proclaims, who shall I send? Who will go? He gives this open call. Will anyone go and be my prophet? Isaiah is right there and he says, send me. Don't send one of those seraphim to proclaim your message. Send me to proclaim your message. And here is how the story continues. We'll do Isaiah 6. We'll start at verse 8 and we'll go through the rest of the chapter. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and say this to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste, without inhabitants, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. The words of the Lord. What we have in these words is a summary of Isaiah's preaching ministry, which is a picture of many faithful gospel preaching ministries. That is to say that the difficult but blessed situation that Isaiah will find himself in for the rest of his life is the difficult but blessed situation that many proclaimers of the gospel face. The very situation that if I am to faithfully bring this gospel forth in this pulpit that I am likely to face, and that if you faithfully bring the gospel to those in your life that you are likely to face. So let's look first at the summary and the very words here, and then we will talk about how similar it is to the difficult situations you find yourself in when you bring the gospel to your friends. But we'll start at verse nine. Verse eight kind of bridged from last week. In verse nine, we find Isaiah's commission as a prophet. Go and say to this people. With those words, the Lord is commissioning him not just to say something, but to take the office of prophet in Israel. And prophets had a very specific job, which I want to outline for you. Their job was to enforce the covenant that the Lord had made with them using the words that God gave them. 
Now, God had made a covenant with his people on Mount Sinai. His relationship with them, their relationship to God was outlined in this solemn vow that the Lord made and wrote down in pieces in Leviticus, Numbers, uh, I'm sorry, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and then in a summary in Deuteronomy, they could look back to it and see what has God promised us? What does he require of us? They had that in the law. And the way the covenant, the way the vow worked was about like this. He said to them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. Here are my ways. Do them and I will bless you beyond your imagination. Forsake my ways and I will curse you. So it's very simple, right? I brought you out of Egypt. Here are the ways. Do them and be blessed or don't do them and be cursed. And the specific blessings and curses were laid out. If they wanted to know what the consequences of certain things were, they had it all written down. Many years later, King David would ascend to the throne and he would seek after God's ways. He would bring so much delight to the Lord in the way that he sought the Lord's ways. And so at one point, the Lord would appear to him and he would say to him with a solemn vow, with a covenant, with a pledge, he would say, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the sheepfold. David used to be a shepherd. I brought you out of the sheepfold and I made you king. And behold, when you die your son will reign after you. You won't just have a kingdom, but a dynasty. And his son will reign after him and his son after him. In fact, you will never lack a man to sit on the throne. Your dynasty, your house, David, will be forever. If your son follows my ways, I will reward him. If your son forsakes my ways, I will discipline him. But no matter what, never will you lack a man to sit on the throne. Now, you might see the similarities here, right? If Israel followed God's ways, God would bless them. And similarly, if the king followed God's ways, the Lord would bless him. If Israel did not follow the Lord's ways, he would curse them. And if the king did not follow God's ways, he would discipline that king. But never would the kingdom be fully and finally taken away from David's house, for he will have a son to rule forever. So those are the covenants, the promises, the sacred vows God had made to his people. What the prophets did was they would come up one after another, generation after generation, and they would essentially give updates on how it is going. They would take the covenants and apply them to the very specific things that Israel and her kings were doing. They would say, here's how you're doing, keeping the Lord's ways. And so here is what's going to happen as a result. And if it was bad news, they would proclaim still hope because in the end, David's dynasty will continue on. The holy seed will remain. This is now the mantle that Isaiah will take up. He will now go publicly before Israel and he will tell them plainly and clearly how they are doing keeping the covenant and what will come as a result. He will go before kings, multiple kings, because he outlives several of them. He'll go before kings and tell them, here is how you are doing keeping the Lord's covenant. You imagine the fear of going before a king and saying, you are doing wickedly and here is what is going to happen. That's his job. And here will be the result of it. Yet, David's seed will never be cut off. There will always be one left to sit on the throne when it's ready for him. Now Isaiah will go and he will give this message as God gives him the words. And so how was it going? Was Israel keeping the Lord's ways? Well, we find out in the very next verse. 
starting with the second half of verse nine. He says, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. So Israel had been hearing the prophetic words of God, but resisting them. Hearing the warnings of the prophets before Isaiah, but not getting it. And with these words, keep on, he's saying, this is going to continue. The Lord is saying, you have resisted my words and you will continue to do it even more. Which means that Isaiah's clear and powerful proclaiming of God's word was going to do what verse 10 says. It would make the heart of this people dull and make their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So Isaiah's clear, resounding preaching that anyone could hear and understand would make their ears stopped up even more to the message. Isaiah would later be ridiculed because his teaching was too simple. His opponents would say, you are teaching like a kindergarten teacher. It's precept upon precept, hurling this at him as an insult. When in reality, what the Lord was doing was making that preaching plain and simple so no one could get away and say that it was too lofty for them to understand, demonstrating how hard their hearts were. He would preach and proclaim with the most beautiful and compelling of imagery. You just can't help but read even the first half of this chapter when he's talking about fiery creatures with wings and when they speak, the temple is filled with smoke and your imagination is just captive by these images that he proclaims with. And yet, those vivid images would blind the eyes of Israel even more and show how very resistant they were to God's merciful words. I wonder if that unsettles you a little bit. In fact, I don't have to wonder. I know. I'm sure that unsettles you. And not just because I know you, but because look at what Isaiah's response is in verse 11. It unsettles him too. He says, it says, Then I said, How long, O Lord? Those words, how long, O Lord, you see them many times in the Psalms and you see them elsewhere too. They're the words of faithful Old Testament saints when they are complaining to God. God, how long will you let my enemies be victorious? How long will these inserts be hurled at me? I know you and I know your ways and I know how good you are and this does not seem like the way that you would have things. How long, O Lord, will you let this go on? And Isaiah looks at this and says, how long, O Lord? Did, did you make this covenant with them only for them to squander it and bring themselves into ruin? How long will your people choose to resist your ways? How long, O oh Lord? And God's answer is even more chilling. He says in the rest of verse 11, until cities lie waste without inhabitants, And houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes the people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. 
This is in reference to the coming day when Israel's enemies would defeat them, would destroy many of their best cities and buildings, and then would take them captive off into another land where the land of Israel would just lie in ruins with few, if any, inhabitants, demonstrating how badly they had rejected the Lord's word. And then in verse 13, it says, if you think that's not, if you think that's rock bottom, it's actually not. It says, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. Israel would eventually come back into their land, but they would dwell under Persian rule, not under a Davidic king like they longed to. And then the Persians would be defeated by the Greeks, and so Israel would live under Greek rule. And then the Greeks defeated by the Romans, and so they would live under Roman rule, never living under the Davidic king that they were promised and that they longed for. Isaiah's preaching would take the mighty oak tree or the mighty cedar tree of Israel, and see it turn into rot and ash until it was chopped down with nothing but a stump remaining. This is the legacy of Isaiah's preaching to Israel. As it says, though a tenth remained, it will be burned like a tree whose stump remains when it is felled. But remember the end of that promise to David, though, right? If, if the king rebelled, he'd be disciplined. If the king did not rebel, he'd be rewarded. But never in any circumstance would David lack a man to sit on the throne, right? The line will continue forever and ever not to be cut off. So no matter how bad things got, even if Israel was taken down to a little stump, right? Some of you have chopped a tree down and you know how this works. Sometimes there's a little life left in that stump, right? People get paid big money to come and remove stumps because if you leave it there, sometimes a new tree sprouts out of that stump, doesn't it? Sometimes a little bit of life is there left and a little shoot will shoot forth and, you know, in a hundred years, there could be a bigger tree than was there in the first place. Well, that promise was made to David that life would never fully be taken out of his line, that the holy seed would remain forever and ever. And that is why we have this very last line, the holy seed is its stump. Remaining in that little stump that left was just a little bit of life, just a remnant of spiritual life and a remnant of the holy line from whom one day a Davidic king would come and would rule. That is the summary of Isaiah's message that he would preach. Which means that if you are reading through the book of Isaiah with us now, that's the summary of the book of Isaiah. And you can find those themes all throughout the book. If you were to turn back to chapter one, what you would find there is the Lord deeply rebuking his people for their false worship. At one point, he even says, I hate and despise your festivals and sacrifices. You imagine hearing those words from the Lord. And yet after this deep rebuke and after the terrible description of the things that are going to come because of it, then out of, almost out of nowhere, he says in verse 18, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. 
This is in reference to what that coming seed who is coming, that shoot that will come out of the stump, what he will do. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be made as white as snow. And then chapter two will paint a picture of the wonderful, unreal kingdom that this king will bring. And on and on you can go. I do want to show you one particular time where this theme comes up. Let's flip over to chapter 11, where this very king himself is promised and his reign is It just seems very unreal, very incredible. But I want you to notice the imagery that is used in verse 1 to speak of this king who will come. It says in chapter 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This is the same imagery with the same meaning of that last little verse in Isaiah 6, right? The holy seed is in the stump. The tree may be chopped down to a stump, but there is life in that stump. And from the stump of Jesse, Jesse being David's father, so this is David's house, David's lineage, from it will come one shoot. And what will he be like? The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will judge with righteousness. He will bring peace. All of these wonderful things through this one seed who will come. You can turn all through the book of Isaiah and see these themes pop up because as you do, the second half of chapter six is the summary of it. Eventually it would all come true. Isaiah would stand up and preach with vivid imagery and picture-perfect clarity, and the people would revile him for it and reject him in return. We don't know for sure, but tradition says that the king had him sawn in half for the words that he brought to the king. One way or another, we know that he was reviled and he was rejected. And yet... There was a small group that did receive his preaching and did follow him. And they even preserved his words and took time to write them down and then protect those words all throughout the time of exile so that they would be preserved, eventually brought into the canon, preserved so long that here we are almost 3,000 years later reading and receiving those very words ourselves. From that little bit, from that little stump comes a whole grand tree, doesn't it? Israel's hard-heartedness would become so great that the Lord would send in foreign armies to defeat them, take them off to exile. As I said earlier, they would eventually come back, but they would not live under their own rule and under the Davidic king, but other under, country, uh, under other countries. But then the stump would remain and the holy seed would remain in the stump. So much that eventually a descendant of David named Joseph would be engaged to a woman named Mary. And while they were engaged, while she was still a virgin, miraculously, she would conceive and bear forth a son, a shoot coming from the stump of Jesse. This one would live perfectly, would teach with authority and clarity. He would experience a lot of what Isaiah experienced for doing it. Eventually, he would die to pay for the sins of his people. He would rise from the dead to show that that payment was enough, and he would be lifted up into heaven where he sits on the throne even to this day reigning, a son of David, the holy seed, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, seated 
on the throne, reigning not just Israel, but reigning the universe, promising to come back and reign here on earth one day. This holy seed that was in the stump as it remained alive, this was our Jesus Christ, whom we love, whom we proclaim here all the time, who we sing to all the time. He is the one that Isaiah saw, the one that Isaiah spoke of, and the one whose glory Isaiah loved. Now, Isaiah's job was to apply that covenant to Israel, right? He would say, here's how you're doing, Israel, and here's what's going to happen. Well, before Jesus was lifted up into heaven, he gave to his people a commission, and it was to proclaim this news of the gospel, the news that he died and rose to secure forgiveness for the sins of his people, to proclaim that to all the world. As the Lord says here in Isaiah 6, whom shall I send? Who shall go? Before he goes up, he says, who will go? I send all of you. Go and make disciples of all nations. Proclaim this good news of all nations. Proclaim what is called the new covenant to all nations. As Jesus was here, he instituted a new and better covenant with the shedding of his own blood. A covenant that says, if you would trust In him and his death, you would find forgiveness secured for your sins. A covenant that says, if you would trust in him, you would find new life given to your heart such that you would long to obey him. A covenant that says, if you would trust in him, you would be brought back into God's people. This is the new and better covenant. And what we are commissioned to do is take that covenant and apply it to the people we see around us proclaim it to the people we see around us. And so in many ways, our calling is similar to Isaiah's. He proclaimed and applied the old covenant to Israel. We proclaim and apply the new covenant found in the gospel to this room, to everybody that we know. And so let's look at a few ways that our calling is very similar to his. So the Lord commissions you to take the gospel to your friends and your loved ones. And let's say you have a friend who has committed adultery and their conscience is just torn up over what they have done. Well, the promises of the new covenant speak to that situation. And so our job is to proclaim the Lord's covenant that he has made by the shedding of his blood to that situation with words like, Jesus offers to you forgiveness for your adultery. His blood has covered the sins of many adulterers before you, and he is willing to apply it to you as well. Would you trust in him? Here is taking the new covenant and applying it to one specific person. As the prophets arose and said, here is how the old covenant applies to you, we say, here is how the gospel, the new covenant, applies to you, friends. Trust and believe the gospel. And as we do, I call any of you who are willing today to put your faith in Jesus, receive forgiveness of your sins, find him giving you a new heart, be brought back into his people. Even now, put your trust in him. There is No magic spell you must say to receive his forgiveness. No magic raising of the hand or coming down an aisle. No, let the Lord change your heart. Put your trust in Jesus Christ and you will find there forgiveness for sins now and forever. We proclaim that covenant promise just as Isaiah proclaimed the covenant promises of the old covenant. 
like him, our hearers have long resisted the testimony of God. So we're like him in another way. And like him, many of our hearers will continue to resist the testimony of God, even as we proclaim it. But like him, we are not given an out to stop proclaiming it because it seems to us that many will reject it. No, we keep on proclaiming it as he did, no matter the response. Like him, our preaching will preserve a remnant, a holy stump. As Jesus says, narrow is the road that leads to life. Few will find it. How do they find it? Through our preaching. Wide is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life. They find that life through our preaching. So just like him, our hearers have long resisted the testimony of God. Our hearers will likely continue to resist the testimony of God, yet we keep proclaiming, and through that proclamation, he gives life to the few who are willing to receive it. Now, you might ask, Now, Dave, is it right to take these words about one prophet in the Old Testament and apply them to the preaching of Jesus in the church era? Well, I want to show you, yes, in two ways. One, Isaiah's pattern is very consistent throughout the whole Bible, not just with Isaiah. And two, Isaiah's words are quoted in the New Testament to talk about the very rejection of Jesus. Let me give you the first one first. Let me show you that this pattern of being rejected in this way is a theme for so many of God's faithful preachers. You might take it all the way back to Noah, who first Peter tells us was a herald of righteousness, right? Meaning he didn't just build the ark over those many years. He also stood up and proclaimed to a generation that railed against God, judgment is coming, turn, come back to the Lord. And only seven people came to the ark with him. And they were his family. Everyone else rejected that heralding that Noah brought and found judgment instead. Years later, Lot would dwell in the city of Sodom. He would see the wickedness there and he would plead with them, don't do this wicked thing before God. And the people there, mostly the men there, turn on him and attempt to kill him. Only an angel is able to save him at the last moment. Moses would rise up and go before Pharaoh And he would go with mighty signs. He'd throw his stick down and it would turn into a serpent and swallow up the serpents of the magic people in Pharaoh's courts. And then these great plagues would come, signs and wonders following Moses' preaching. And Pharaoh just says, nope, I'm not buying it. I'm not, hardened heart, he will not listen. And then eventually he does listen. The people go out into the desert. Moses is leading the people of Israel in the desert. And over and over, they display their hard-heartedness so much that at the end of his life, Moses uses very similar images to what Isaiah says here and says, God has not given you eyes to see or ears to hear or a heart to understand yet to this point. 
Eventually, prophets would rise up in Israel, many of them in Jerusalem. They would call Israel back to the Lord's way, and they would over and over be rejected. So much that Jesus refers to Jerusalem as the city that stones the prophets and kills those who are sent to it. He says, how often would I have longed to gather you under my wings, Jerusalem? But why didn't he? Some of you know the rest of it, but you were not willing the prophet's words to come back rejected by the very people they were sent to. And perhaps the pattern is most pointed in Jesus himself, who preached with great signs and wonders and was very popular. He drew great crowds, but very few received his message that he was Lord of the universe and that he would die and rise, securing forgiveness for his people. Even his own disciples had trouble receiving that message as he proclaimed it to them numerous times. And would you believe that when that happens, Jesus actually quotes this very passage to explain what is going on in Jerusalem. It happens in all four gospels, but why don't we turn to John 12, and I just want to show it to you there. the ultimate of preachers. If anyone would be received, it would be the son. John 12, and I'm going to start in verse 37. It says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah may be fulfilled. Now, this is a different part of Isaiah. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, and here's today's text, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn that I would heal them. And here's the profound thing, verse 41 Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. People don't just reject preachers. No, they reject Jesus. And so when Jesus comes to preach, what does he receive most of all? Rejection, scorn, denial. Even the religious leaders would conspire against him and have him murdered by the Roman government because their hardness of heart against him was so strong. If Jesus' proclaiming of his own message leads to rejection, do you think that we will find a way to make it palatable to the masses? Will we find a way to proclaim this message that makes the public say, as they should, yes, here is the message we have been waiting for. No, if they rejected the master, they will reject the servants as well. You need to know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke also quote the same text, but they do it differently. They do it to explain Jesus' preaching of the parables. The parables were where Jesus used very simple, everyday images to proclaim very lofty truth so that anybody could understand it. He would do it in this simple and powerful way, and people would still reject him, which would demonstrate their hardness of heart, as is said in Isaiah 6. 
Would you believe, though, that that's only two-thirds of the time that this text is quoted? This text is quoted in the first six books of your New Testament, one each time. Quoted at the end of Acts, when Paul sees that his preaching is rejected, he says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you people? And he reads the very same text. Then Paul quotes it again in Romans to describe and to explain Israel's rejection of its king and Messiah when he came. So this text particularly is used to refer to Israel's rejection of their Messiah. And the greater pattern, both in and out of Israel, remains the same. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Few enter through it. Wide is the way that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. That means that faithful preaching plainly calls people back to the Lord is mostly met with rejection, yet it does give life to a precious and small remnant. And so we must keep proclaiming. That is what I believe the Lord wants to do in us this morning, because Like I said earlier, many of us become afraid and do not bring the gospel to our friends because we are afraid it will be rejected when we do. We sense that the world around us has long been hard to the true gospel and is becoming even more hardened, perhaps, against it. And so we stop bringing it to him because we are scared. And the Lord says here, I will make you face that fear. He says, I will level with you. You are afraid people will reject you if you bring the gospel to them. You don't need to be afraid of it because I assure you it will happen. Yet, I will be with you and I will use your proclamation of the gospel to bring life to a precious remnant. This means then that our sense that people largely don't want to hear the message we're proclaiming is no longer a valid excuse for not proclaiming it anymore. In fact, it may even be all the more reason to continue proclaiming it because the Lord himself saw that coming. For those of you that like sports, maybe I can put it in baseball terms for you. This means that when you bring the gospel to your friends, you should expect a low batting average, but you must not stop swinging. Expect a low batting average, but keep swinging. In baseball, if somebody gets to first base three out of 10 times over their career, they get into a hall of fame for that. And some of you know, most of you know this, you don't even get a point for going to first base. Like you haven't even contributed to the score yet for getting to first. You got to get all the way around the bases. Yet, if you get to first base three out of 10 times, you're almost guaranteed to get into the hall of fame in baseball. If you bring the gospel to 10 people this year, and seven of them reject it, but three receive it after much pleading. Friend, you are an all-star in the game of evangelism. You probably have the gift of evangelism if you are that effective. If you bring it to 10 people and one receives it, but nine reject it, you're probably batting par for the course. If you bring it to 10 people and none receive it, but everyone scorns you, you become the black sheep in your family because you won't stop talking about Jesus. You become that odd man out at work that everyone rejects because you won't stop talking about Jesus. The neighbors think you're weird because you're so into that Christianity stuff. Friend, count yourself joyful because the Lord is counting you worthy to suffer for the gospel. As Paul and Silas were rejected when they preached it, they were stuck in a prison cell 
And there they are singing praises to God, rejoicing that they are counted worthy to suffer for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I hope that you are worthy to suffer for it as well. I hope the Lord does that work even in your heart this morning. Because the problem for most of us is not that only three out of 10 people are coming to Christ when we bring the gospel or that only one out of 10 are coming. The problem for many of us is that we are not bringing the gospel to the 10 people. And this is what the Lord would desire to correct. This is what the Lord says, no, no, here are my ways. Here is my commission. Go and bring this news to them. And when they reject you, continue to proclaim it. So that means very practically, you might have that coworker you have longed to bring the gospel to. Take them to Starbucks and say something like, you know that thing you mentioned the other day, the the Bible actually speaks to that. You mind if I just read to you what it says? They may reject you for it, but you have brought it. You have been faithful as Isaiah was. That means invite your neighbors over. If you've been wanting to have them over so that you could bring the gospel, invite them over and say something to them like, in our home, our faith is so important to us here. Do you mind if we just share with you what we believe? And there you have, open door to proclaim the gospel. That means we've got invite cards sitting in the welcome center there. Grab as many as you feel like you can give out and bring as many people as you can with you to hear this message. You will hear a lot of no's. A lot of people will say no, they do not want to go to church but a few will say yes, and a few will be here, and a few will receive the good news. From them, the Lord shall build his kingdom and his church. He did it once when Jesus was rejected, and he built it through 12 disciples, who really were down to 11 by the end of it. He can do it through us if only a few people would come. So we must keep proclaiming. We must find those and let the Lord bring them in. Church, let's look to the world around us and see that our preaching will give life to those that receive it. And let us go and get them. Let's pray together.